Part Three, Chapter Two of The Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter Two. Clodagh's manner was careless and her gait nonchalant as she rose from table and crossed the terrace followed by her dog, but inwardly she burned with a newly kindled sense of anticipation. There was no particular reason why the idea of a journey to Venice, for the purpose of seeing a stockbroker, even though that stockbroker was a personal friend of Milbank's, should be so instinct with any promise, yet the idea excited her. With the exception of the journey to England with Nance, it was the first time in four years that her husband had seriously contemplated any move not ostensibly connected with his hobby, and the thought of Venice, the suggestion of encountering anyone whose interest lay outside antiquities, had power to elate her. As she left the breakfast-table her steps unconsciously quickened, and Mick, attentively sensitive to her altered gait, wagged his short tail, gave one sharp, incisive bark of question, and looked up at her with eyes inquisitively pricked. She paused and looked down at him. "'Mick, darling,' she whispered, "'imagine Venice at night, the music and the water and the romance, and just think,' her voice dropped still lower, "'just think what it would be to meet someone, anyone at all, who might happen to notice that one's clothes were new and that one's hair was properly done up.' She bent down in a sudden impulse of excitement, and kissed his upraised head. Then, with a quick laugh at her own impetuosity, she turned and ran down the first flight of time-worn marble steps. That was her private and personal reception of the news. Later, returning with her arms full of the roses that ran riot in the garden, she was able to meet Milbank with a demeanor of dignified calm, and to answer his questions as to whether her boxes could be packed in two days in a voice that was dutifully submissive and unmoved. But the two days of preparation were imbued with a secret joy. There was a new and unending delight in selecting the most beautiful of the dresses in her elaborate wardrobe, and in feeling that at last they were to be seen by eyes that would understand their value. For Milbank, while never restraining her craving for costly clothes, had since the day of their marriage been totally unobservant and indifferent as to whether she wore silk or homespun, and on the occasions when outside opinions might have been brought to bear upon the matter, namely the moments when the archaeological excursions were undertaken, necessities of season or expediency had invariably limited her supply of garments to the clothes that would not show the dust or the clothes that would keep out the rain. But now the prospect was different. It was still the season in Venice she would be justified in bringing the best and most attractive clothes she possessed. The thought was exhilarating. Life became a thing of bustle and interest. Two or three times a day she drove into Florence to make totally unnecessary purchases. She wrote more than one long letter to Nance, and indulged in many a protracted and confidential talk with Mick as they sat together on the edge of the old marble fountain that dripped and dozed in the sun by a hundred actions, obvious or obscure, she made it plain in those days of preparation that, despite the fact that her childhood lay behind her, and that she had known none of the intermediate pleasures of ordinary girlhood, she was a being whose heart, whose capacity for enjoyment, 
whose comprehension of life was extraordinarily, even dangerously, young. At last the day dawned upon which they left the villa on the sunny hill, said good-bye to the wide, slow river, the riotous roses, and the slow-tolling bells of Florence, and took train for the north. Through the hours of that railway journey Clodagh sat almost silent. To her eager mind, already springing forward towards the enchanted city, there was no need for speech, and the quiet prim husband seated opposite to her made no call upon her imagination. He was essential to the journey, as the padded cushion behind her head or the English books and magazines by her side were essential to it, and for this reason he occupied that most fatal of all positions, the position of an accepted, familiar accessory. The early days of their marriage, when in her eyes he had taken in a new and dreaded aspect, were entirely past. With his supersensitiveness and constitutional distrust he had withdrawn somewhat hastily from the position of lover to shelter behind the cloak of his former guardianship, and Clodagh had hailed the courage of attitude with obvious relief. Now as she sat eagerly alert to gain her first glance of Venice she had almost forgotten that those early days had ever existed. For the moment Millbank was a cipher and she, an ardent, appreciative individual, undergoing a new sensation. Such was her precise mental position when at last the scene for which she waited broke upon her view. Rising straight out of the water, Venice seemed to her ardent eyes even more the product of a visionary world than her dreams had made it. The hour was seven, and from the many spires and domes of the city warm gleams of bronze or gold shot forth at the touch of the setting sun. But the prevailing note of color that gleamed through the mauve twilight was white, the wonderful semi-transparent white of ancient marble backgrounded by sea and sky. The effect made upon Clodagh's mind by this white city wrapped in its evening veil was instantaneous and deep. With the exception of Florence, her knowledge of the beauties of Italy was very limited and her first glimpse of Florence had been gained under such propitious circumstances that its sheltered loveliness had never appealed to her as it might otherwise have done. Now, however, her condition of mind was tranquil, if not happy, and as the train sped forward she gazed spellbound at this beauty at once so tangible and so unreal. To every traveller it must come with a sense of desecration that this most magical of cities is approached by nothing less prosaic than an ordinary railway terminus, and Clodagh gave a little involuntary gasp of disappointment as the train swerved suddenly, exchanging the glamour of the outer world for a noisy station that might have belonged to any town, and as she rose from her seat, arranged her hat, and collected her books, she wondered for one moment whether the vision just hidden from her view was in reality the handiwork of man and not some mirage conjured up by her own imagination. So strong was the feeling that she remained silent as she descended from the train and waited while Millbank saw to the collecting of the luggage. Then still without speaking she followed him down the flight of steps that led to the water. But there, as the station vanished from consideration and the picturesque crowd of waiting gondolas met her gaze, her pleasure and excitement woke again, and with a quick gesture she laid her hand on her husband's arm. "'Oh, isn't it wonderful?' she said in a hushed voice. 
Millbank turned to her uncertainly. "'Yes, my dear,' he said absently. "'Yes, but—' He sniffed critically. "'But do you not detect a distinctly unhealthy odor?' Clodagh's hand dropped suddenly and expressively to her side and she wheeled round with unnecessary haste towards the gondola into which the luggage was being piled. But even this jarring incident could not mar the first journey in the stately black boat. Every portion of the way was instinct with its own especial charm. From the wide dignity of the Grand Canal with its ancient palaces, its mysterious stream of silent traffic, its occasional note of modern life, to the fascinating glimpses of narrower waterways where the women of the people with uncovered heads leaned out of their windows to exchange the day's gossip with a neighbor across the water, all was a delight, something engrossing and unique. Clodagh had no desire to speak as they glided forward, and when the hotel steps were reached she suffered herself to be assisted from the gondola scarcely certain whether she was dreaming or awake. Outside the hotel half a dozen visitors were seated upon the small stone terrace indolently watching the arrival of new guests but so absorbed was clodagh in the scene before her that she scarcely observed their presence and when millbank murmuring an excuse departed to see after their rooms she turned again towards the canal that she had just left and leaning over the balustrade of the terrace paused for a moment to study the picture afresh but as she stood there unconscious of everything but the wonderful noiseless pageant passing ceaselessly through the purple twilight, more than one glance strayed in her own direction, and two at least among the hotel visitors changed their lounging attitudes for the purpose of observing her more closely. The two, both men, were simultaneously and noticeably attracted. The elder, who by his extremely fastidious and studied appearance, might almost have belonged to another and earlier era than our own, was a man of nearly seventy. The younger was his junior by forty-five years. But so leveling a thing is spontaneous admiration, the expression upon the two faces as they leant suddenly forward were strikingly similar. The old man held a gold-rim eyeglass close to his eye. The younger meditatively removed his cigarette from his mouth but at this critical moment of their close observation Millbank reappeared, and moving stiffly across the terrace, touched Clodagh's arm. "'My dear,' he said, "'our rooms are ready. If you will go upstairs I will find Barnard. I will not dress for dinner to-night. It is after seven o'clock.' Clodagh turned, her face glowing with the enthusiasm that filled her mind. "'All right,' she said, "'but I think I'll just change into something cool. It won't take ten minutes.' Without waiting for his assent she turned quickly and walked across the terrace to the vestibule of the hotel. As she passed the two men in the lounge-chairs the elder again lifted his eyeglass, while the younger, leaning forward, stared at her with that superb lack of embarrassment or reserve that the young Englishman can at some times assume. "'By Jove!' he said very softly, as the two new arrivals disappeared into the hotel. His companion turned to him with a thin laugh that belied his carefully preserved appearance. "'Attractive, eh?' he said. The other replaced his cigarette in his mouth. "'What nationality is she?' he asked after a moment's pause. "'I'd feel inclined to say Italian myself, but the old father's so uncompromisingly Saxon.' Again the older man laughed, a laugh that expressed unfathomable worldly wisdom. "'Father!' he said satirically. 
fathers don't shuffle round their women-folk like that. They are husband and wife. Husband and wife, the other smiled. But the older man pursed up his lips. You'll find I'm right, he said. She walked three steps ahead of him to avoid seeing him, and she did it unconsciously. Proof conclusive. The young man laughed. Doesn't carry conviction, uncle, he said. I'll bet you a fiver you're wrong. Will you take me on? His companion smiled languidly. As you like, he responded. The young man nodded, then he looked down lazily at his flannel suit. I suppose it's time to change, he said reluctantly. Awful bore being conventional abroad. With another careless nod, he lounged off in the direction of the hall. Exactly a quarter of an hour later, Clodagh emerged from her bedroom looking fresh and cool in a dress of rose-colored gauze that cut high in the neck and possessing sleeves that reached the wrist was yet light and diaphanous in effect. She opened her door and, mindful of the lateness of the hour, moved quickly out into the corridor. But scarcely had she taken a step in the direction of the stairs than a door exactly opposite to her own was opened with equal haste, and the young Englishman of the terrace appeared before her. Seeing her he halted involuntarily, and for a second their eyes met. The glance was momentary, there was not a word spoken, but irresistibly the color rushed into Clodagh's face. It took her but an instant to regain her composure and to pass down the empty corridor with a touch of hauteur. But long after she had gained the stairs her heart was beating with a new excitement. The glance that the stranger had given her had been almost ill-bred in its absolute directness, but ill or well-bred there had been no mistaking the unqualified admiration it conveyed. The personality of the man had escaped her attention. The fact that his hair was dark, his face attractive, and his figure tall, slight, and graceful had made no impression upon her. All she was conscious of, all that set her pulses throbbing, was the suddenly awakened knowledge that, within herself, she possessed some subtle and previously unrealized power that could compel a man's regard. She descended the stairs with a new sensation of elasticity and elation, and at its foot found Millbank awaiting her in conversation with a suave elderly man. As she came within speaking distance the two turned towards her. "'My dear,' Millbank said quickly, "'allow me to introduce Mr. David Barnard. David, this is my—my wife.' Clodagh looked up curiously and met the florid face bland smile and observant eyes of Bernard, a man who for nearly a quarter of a century had managed to prosper in his profession and at the same time to retain a prominent place in fashionable society. As their glances met she held out her hand. "'How do you do?' she said. "'I believe I've been wanting to know you ever since I heard you laugh one day two years ago.' She spoke warmly, impulsively, almost as Dennis Ashland might have spoken, Involuntarily Milbank glanced at her with a species of surprise. In that moment she was neither the frank, fearless child he had first known, nor the self-contained, unfathomable girl who had since become his daily companion. In the crowded cosmopolitan atmosphere of the hotel she seemed suddenly to display a new individuality. Barnard took her outstretched hand and bowed over it impressively. "'It is very charming of you to say that, Mrs. Milbank,' he murmured. "'But I'm afraid James has told me that you come from Ireland.' Clodagh laughed. "'He'll also tell you that I live quite forty miles from the Blarney Stone.' She looked up, 
her face brimming with animation. Then suddenly and involuntarily she colored. The young Englishman of the terrace was coming slowly down the stairs. He descended nonchalantly, and as he reached the hall he deliberately paused in front of the little group. "'Hello, Barney,' he said easily. "'Been playing much bridge this afternoon.' Bernard looked round with his tactfully affable smile. "'Haven't had one rubber,' he said. "'No?' "'No.' There was a pause, a seemingly unnecessary and pointless pause, in which Barnard looked suavely at the newcomer. The newcomer looked at Clodagh, and Clodagh looked fixedly out across the hall. Then at last the older man seemed to realize that something was expected of him. With a gay gesture he metaphorically swept the silence aside. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said affably, "'will you permit me to present my friend Mr. Valentine Seracol?' End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 Clodagh looked up coloring afresh, and the young man bowed quickly and eagerly. He belonged to a type new to her but familiar to every social Londoner, the type of young Englishman who, gifted with unusual height and fine possibilities of muscular development, saunters through life, physically and morally, exerting his energy and his strength in one direction only, the eternal, aimless, enervating search after personal pleasure. To be explicit, the Honorable Valentine Seracold was suffering from that most modern of complaints, the lack of surmountable obstacles. The nephew of one of the richest peers in England, he had started life heavily handicapped. A sufficiency of money had rendered work unnecessary, good looks, and a naturally ingratiating manner had precluded the need for mental equipment, while his social position had unfairly protected him from any share in the rough-and-tumble existence that moulds and hardens a man's character. At fifteen he had been an average healthy public schoolboy. At five-and-twenty he was a fashionable young aristocrat whose only business in life was the aiding and abetting of his uncle in the absorbing pursuit of killing time. He bowed now to Clodagh with the extreme impressiveness that men of his type bestow upon a new and promising introduction. "'Charmed to meet you, Mrs. Milbank,' he said. "'Are you a resident here, or a bird of passage like ourselves?' He indicated Barnard. Clodagh met his intent gaze with a renewed thrill of speculative pleasure. "'My husband and I live at Florence,' she explained. "'We are only here on business, which sounds like a desecration.' Seracold continued to watch her. "'Not if you have any share in it,' he said in a low voice. She laughed and blushed. "'I'm afraid you speak from inexperience,' she said. "'To the people who know me I am a very prosaic person.' She looked involuntarily at Milbank. But Milbank's eyes were on the groups of hotel guests already moving towards the dining-room. "'Don't you think we might—might make a move?' he hazarded vaguely. There was a very slight pause, then Seracold responded to the suggestion. "'You are quite right,' he said easily. "'I expect my uncle is looking for me. He usually gets fidgety about feeding time. Will you excuse me, Mrs. Milbank? Perhaps later on I shall have the chance of correcting that, that inexperience you accuse me of.' He laughed pleasantly and with a courteous gesture disappeared into the crowd that was fast filing out of the hall. As he disappeared Clodagh turned towards the dining-room, leaving Milbank and Barnard to follow but she had scarcely crossed the hall when the latter overtook her. "'Well, Mrs. Milbank,' he said genially, 
what do you think of our young friend? I believe he usually finds favor in ladies' eyes. She glanced up. I think him very charming, she said candidly. Who is he? Do you know him well? Barnard smiled. I have known him since he was a boy at Eton. He is nephew of the famous Earl of Deerhurst, who, according to rumor, spends three hundred a year on silk socks and bathes every morning in scented milk. Clodagh made an exclamation of disgust. What an abominable person! Again Barnard smiled. Well, I don't quite know, he said tolerantly. Rumor is generally a yard or two in front of reality. Perhaps Deerhurst is rather a mummified old rue. But then, you know, embalming is a clean process, Mrs. Milbank, before as well as after death. I sometimes wonder whether Valentine won't put the family money to even less harmful use if he ever succeeds to the title. He is next in the succession but for one feeble life. Clodagh's eyes opened. Really, she said, I should never have connected him with so much responsibility. Bernard looked down at her. Responsibility, he said. I don't think I should call it responsibility. But what has become of James? He paused and glanced round the fast-emptying hall. As he did so, Milbank hurried up, his manner newly interested, his thin face flushed. Who do you think I have just seen, Clodagh? he asked excitedly. Mr. Angelo Toombs, that interesting scientist who joined our party at Pisa last year. Clodagh looked round. What? she said in surprise the big untidy-looking man who had written a book on something terribly unpronounceable? Milbank nodded gravely. Yes, he said, a most interesting and exhaustive work. I shall make a point of congratulating him upon it directly we have finished dinner. And what about me? Bernard eyed him quizzically. You, oh, you must wait, David. You will understand that a man like Mr. Toombs is not to be met with every day. They were entering the dining-room as Milbank spoke and involuntarily Bernard glanced from the precise formal figure of his friend to the youthful attractive form of his friend's wife. "'And you, Mrs. Milbank,' he asked in an undertone, "'are you an equally great enthusiast? Does the antique appeal very forcibly to you?' As he put the question he was conscious of its irony, but an irrepressible curiosity forced him to utter it. He was still laboring under an intense surprise at Milbank's choice of a wife, and the desire to probe the nature of the relationship was strong within him. "'Are you like the man in the Eastern story?' he added. "'Would you barter new lamps for old?' Clodagh was walking in front of him as he put the question, and Milbank was left momentarily behind. For a second she made no reply. Then suddenly she turned and cast a bright glance over her shoulder. "'If you had asked me that question this morning, Mr. Barnard,' she said, I don't believe I could have answered it, but now I can. I would not part with one new bright lamp for a hundred old ones, no matter how rare. Am I a great vandal? Her eyes were shining with the excitement of the moment, and her face looked beautifully and eagerly alive. Am I a great vandal? she repeated softly. There was an instant's pause, then Bernard stepped closer to her side. No, Mrs. Milbank, he said but you are a very unmistakable child of Eve. The dinner that night was a feast to Clodagh. She sat between Milbank and Barnard, and though the former was silently engrossed in the thought of his coming interview, and for the time being the latter confined his talk to impersonal subjects, 
she felt as if she had never felt before in the span of her twenty-two years. For the first time she was conscious of being a woman, privileged to receive the homage and the consideration of men. It was a wonderful, a thrilling discovery, all the more thrilling and all the more wonderful because shrouded as yet in a veil of mystery. Dinner was halfway through before Bernard returned to his task of studying her individually. Then he turned to her with his most suavely confidential manner. "'Have you been very gay in Florence this season?' he asked. She looked up quickly. "'Gay?' she repeated. "'Oh, no, I don't think we are ever exactly gay.' He raised his eyebrows. "'Indeed,' he said, "'you surprise me. There used to be quite an amusing English crowd at Florence.' Clodagh colored, feeling vaguely conscious of some want in her social equipment. "'Oh, I didn't mean the other English residents,' she corrected hastily. "'I meant ourselves, James and I.' Barnard's face became profoundly interested. "'But don't you care for society?' he said, his eyes traveling expressively over her pretty dress. Again she colored. "'It isn't that,' she said in a low, quick voice. "'James doesn't care about parties or people.' Barnard's lips parted to express surprise or sympathy, but she finished her sentence hastily, and of course I like what he likes. Barnard bent his head. Of course, he said enigmatically, and dropped back into silence. For a time he remained apparently absorbed in his dinner. Then, as Clodagh began to wonder uncomfortably whether she had unwittingly offended him, he turned to her again. Mrs. Milbank, he said softly, would you think me very presumptuous if I were to make a little proposal? Clodagh brightened. Of course not. Say anything you like. You will be here for a week? I, I hope so. She glanced covertly at Milbank. Oh, yes, you will. I shall arrange it. She looked at him quickly. You, she said. How? Never mind how. He smiled reassuringly. You will be here for a week and my proposal is that, while Milbank is settling his business, I should be allowed to introduce you to some English friends of mine who are in Venice just now. It may be presumptuous, but I seem to feel—he hesitated for a moment—I seem to feel that you want to make some new friends, that you want to have a good time. Forgive my being so very blunt. Clodagh sat silent. She felt no resentment at his words, but they vaguely embarrassed her. The new possibility thrilled her, yet insensibly she hesitated before it. "'But ought I to want new friends?' she asked at last in a very low and undecided voice. Bernard laid down the glass that he was lifting to his lips and looked at her quickly. Her freshness charmed while her naivete puzzled him. "'Well, Mrs. Milbank,' he said suddenly, "'suppose we find that out.' And leaning forward he addressed Milbank. "'James,' he said, I have just been making a little suggestion. While you and I are putting our ancient heads together, don't you think Mrs. Milbank ought to study her Venice, local color, atmosphere, all that sort of thing? Milbank turned in his seat. Hey, David, he exclaimed, what's that you say? I was suggesting that Mrs. Milbank should see a little of Venice now that she is here. He indicated the long windows of the dining-room through which the sound of voices and music was already being borne on the purple twilight. Milbank's face became slightly disturbed. "'Of course, of course,' he said vaguely. "'But, but neither of us care much for conventional sightseeing, and then you know my time here is limited.' 
exactly exactly what i was saying your time is valuable all the more danger of mrs milbank's hanging heavily on her hands now there are some charming people staying here at present who would only be too delighted to make her visit pleasant milbank's expression cleared oh well he began in a relieved voice exactly lady francis hope is here you remember lady francis who married my cousin sammy hope the red-headed little beggar who went into the navy she would be intensely interested in mrs milbank i wish you would let me make them known to each other he smiled suavely thoroughly in his element at the prospect of working a little social scheme milbank looked at clodagh what do you think my dear he asked vaguely clodagh looked down at her plate i don't quite know she murmured barnard leant close to her in a confiding manner quite right mrs milbank he said never trouble to analyze your feelings just give them a free rein lady francis hope is a most charming woman always bright always good-natured always in the swim if you understand that very expressive phrase clodagh smiled as she helped herself to an ice during their conversation the dinner had drawn to its close and here and there people were already rising from table and moving towards the hall or the long windows that opened on to the canal unconsciously her eyes turned in the direction of these open windows through which a flood of light streamed out upon the water bringing into prominence the dark gondolas that flitted perpetually to and fro like great black bats seeing her glance barnard turned to her again shall we charter a gondola he asked it's the thing to do here her eyes sparkled oh how lovely she said then involuntarily her face fell and she looked at her husband but perhaps she began deprecatingly as the word escaped her milbank who had been oblivious of the conversation pushed back his chair and rose from table with a faint exclamation of excitement ah there he is he said his eyes fixed upon a distant corner of the room there he is i must not run the risk of missing him clodagh turned to him eagerly james she began mr bernard says but milbank's mind was elsewhere my dear he said hurriedly you must really excuse me a man like mr angelo toombs is a personage of importance yes but james she paused disconcerted milbank had left the table for quite a minute she sat silent her cheeks burning with a sudden sense of mortification and neglect to a reasoning and experienced mind the incident would have carried no weight at most it would have been offered grounds for a passing amusement but with clodagh the case was different circumstances had never demanded the cultivation of her reason and experience was an asset she was not possessed of to her sensitive youthful susceptibilities the incident could only wear one complexion her husband had obviously and wittingly humiliated her in the presence of his friend she sat with tightened lips staring unseeingly at the table then suddenly and softly someone crossed the room behind her and paused behind her chair turning with a little start she saw the pale clean-cut features and searching dark eyes of valentine serocal mrs milbank he said at once in his easy ingratiating voice if you are not doing anything else this evening may i place my uncle's gondola at your disposal both he and i would be considerably honored if you and your husband clodagh looked up into his face with a quick glance of pleasure and relief oh thank you she said thank you so very much i should love to come 
only my husband is is busy to-night she paused and in the pause barnard leaned close to her again with his most friendly and reassuring manner after all mrs milbank he said do you think that need preclude you from the enjoyment james is perfectly happy lord deerhurst's gondola is quite the most comfortable in venice and i'm sure i'm staid enough to play propriety suppose we make a party of four sarah called laughed delightedly how splendid he said mrs milbank may i find my uncle and bring him to be introduced he bent forward quickly leaning across milbank's empty chair for one second clodagh sat irresolute then she glanced swiftly from one interested admiring face to the other and again the blood rushed into her face in a wave of self-conscious pleasure yes she said softly yes bring your uncle to be introduced end of chapter three chapter four sarah called smiled his acknowledgment of the granted permission and departed in search of his uncle while barnard looked at clodagh with amused interest if you can waive your prejudices against the milk baths mrs milbank he said you'll find old deerhurst quite a delightful person but of course when one is very young prejudices are adhesive things he finished his coffee meditatively stealing a glance at her from the corner of his eye she remained silent for a moment tentatively fingering her cup do i seem so very young she asked at last without raising her eyes at the words he turned and looked at her fully do you know mrs milbank he said seriously i am literally devoured by a desire to ask you your age when i saw you come downstairs to-night i felt pardon the rudeness like laughing in james face when he introduced you as his wife you scarcely looked eighteen but a little while ago when you spoke of your life at florence i suddenly felt out in my calculations your face of course seemed just as fascinatingly young but from your expression i could have believed you to be twenty-four and now again please do be lenient to my impertinence now again as you spoke to sarah called you look like a child turning the first page in the book of life are you an enigma during the first portion of his speech clodagh had looked grave but at his last words she laughed with a touch of constraint no she answered i am nothing half so interesting and it's four years since i was eighteen but hadn't i better get my cloak before mr sarah called comes back with another slightly embarrassed laugh she rose and without waiting for barnard's escort walked out of the room ten minutes later she descended the stairs wrapped in a light evening cloak her cheeks were still flushed with excitement and her hazel eyes were dark with anticipation yesterday only yesterday she had been a mere item in the secluded unimportant life of the villa at florence now to-night three men each of whom must in his time have known superlatively interesting and beautiful women awaited her pleasure as she stepped across the hall sarah called darted forward to meet her this is very gracious of you he murmured i hear it is your first evening in venice she glanced up at him as they moved slowly forward across the hall my very first evening she said softly and i so want to enjoy it he paused deliberately and looked at her may i take that as permission to make it enjoyable if i can her lashes drooped in instinctive native coquetry aren't you going to introduce your uncle to me she said in a lowered voice 
He looked at her, mystified and attracted. "'If I knew you better, Mrs. Milbank,' he began. But without replying, Clodagh moved away from him across the hall and out onto the terrace. There, transfixed by a new impression, she paused involuntarily. "'Venice is beautiful in the morning and exquisite in the twilight, but it is at night that the mystery of Venice, that most subtle of its many charms, enwraps and envelops it like a magic web. There is nothing in Europe to rival the literal, tangible romance of Venice at night, the faint, idle, infinitely suggestive lap of water against a thousand unseen steps, the secret darkness revealed rather than dispersed by the furtive uneven lights shed forth from windows or open doors, the throb of music that seems woven into the picture, an inseparable integral part of the enchanted life. All is a wonder and a joy. To Clodagh, with her inherent love of things mystic and beautiful, the scene was curiously impressive. In an ecstasy of appreciation she stood drinking it in, then, suddenly touched with the warm desire of sharing her sensations, she turned to her companion. "'Isn't it wonderful?' she said below her breath. Serokold looked at her for a moment in puzzled doubt. Then he smiled indulgently. "'Yes,' he said vaguely. "'Yes, it is rather great. The water and the gondolas and—and and all that sort of thing.' Her large, clear eyes rested on his face then slowly returned to their scrutiny of the canal. A momentary sense of disappointment had assailed her. She was conscious of a momentary jar. But as she stood, silent and uncertain, a burst of low throbbing music broke across the darkness, and at the same moment she became conscious of a large gondola gliding up to the hotel steps. With the excitement of anticipation the cloud passed from her face. "'Come,' she cried, "'come, I see Mr. Bernard.' It was at the head of the flight of stone steps leading to the water that Lord Deerhurst was introduced to her, and in the semi-darkness it struck her that he made a distinctly interesting figure with his black hair worn a shade lower on the forehead than modern fashion permits, his pale aristocratic unemotional face, his cold penetrating eyes, and the somewhat unusual evening clothes that fitted his tall figure closely, and by a clever touch of the tailor's art, conveyed a suggestion of a period more picturesque than our own. She studied him with deep attention, and bent her head in gratified acknowledgment of the profound bow with which he marked the introduction. A moment later he offered her his hand, and himself assisted her to the waiting gondola. With a pleasant exciting sense of dignity and importance she passed down the steps and entered the boat, noting as she took her seat its costly and elaborate fittings and the somber livery of the two gondoliers. Then, as she leant back against the cushions, her eyes passed back interestingly to the three men to whom she owed the night's adventure. Lord Deerhurst came first, moving with a certain stiff dignity, and appropriated the seat by her side. Bernard and Serokald followed, placing themselves on the two smaller seats that flanked the stern. At a moment later, she saw the gondoliers swing lithely round into their allotted positions and felt the gondola shoot out swiftly and silently into the dark waters. Following the custom of the place they headed for the point where the idle and the pleasure-seeking of Venice gather nightly to listen to the music and lazily watch the swaying paper lanterns of the musicians' gondolas. 
Clodagh sat silent as they skimmed onward. She was bending slightly forward, her whole attitude an unconscious typifying of expectancy. Her hands were lightly clasped in her lap, and again the hazel of her eyes was darkened by their dilated pupils. As the gondola slackened speed, and the music became nearer, more distinct, Lord Deerhurst, who had been covertly studying her, leant suddenly close to her. "'You are a great appreciator of the beautiful, Mrs. Milbank,' he said in his thin, high-bred voice. Clodagh started, and glancing from one to the other of the three men, laughed shyly. "'Why do you say that?' she asked. "'Because I have presumed to watch your face.' She blushed, and Barnard, feeling rather than seeing her embarrassment, made haste to reassure her. "'Mrs. Milbank is an adept in the appreciation of beauty,' he said with a laugh. She was brought up on the study of it. Again Clodagh colored, and again she gave a shy laugh. "'If you say that, Mr. Barnard,' she said, "'I shall accuse you of being a fellow-countryman. I am Irish, you know.' She turned and looked up at Deerhurst. The old peer again bent forward interestingly. "'Indeed,' he exclaimed, "'then we have a bond of sympathy. Some of my best friends come from Ireland.' His voice was high and possessed no fullness, but he had the same courteously ingratiating manner that belonged to his nephew, while a larger acquaintance with the world had taught him an adaptability to circumstances and persons that Seracold had not troubled to acquire. As he spoke now he brought a tone of deference and friendliness into his words that touched Clodagh to a feeling of companionship. "'Then you know Ireland,' she said quickly. "'Very well, indeed.' Her expression softened. "'When were you there last?' she asked in a low voice. "'Last autumn. I was staying at Aranmore with—' "'With Lord Muscarie. I know, I know. Why, you were in our county. My father often and often stayed at Aranmore before.' she checked herself hastily. "'Oh, long ago, before—before I was born,' she added a little awkwardly. "'It was from a stream that runs near there that he took my name, Clodagh.' "'Indeed, what a charming idea!' Deerhurst raised his gold-rimmed eyeglass and peered at her through the dusk. At the same moment Seracald leaned forward in his seat. "'Clodagh,' he repeated. "'Clodagh! What a pretty name!' Once more, and without apparent reason, Clodagh felt her heart beat unevenly. With a short laugh she turned to Barnard. "'And you, Mr. Barnard,' she said hastily, "'do you like the name?' Barnard made a suave gesture. "'I say that it fits its owner.' Once more she laughed with a tinge of nervous excitement. "'A very guarded statement,' she said brightly. "'I think we had better talk about something else. Who are the people I am to meet here? Mr. Barnard kindly wants to provide me with new friends.' She turned again to Deerhurst. Indeed, once more he lifted the gold-rimmed glass, this time to study Barnard. Yes, broke in Barnard genially, Mrs. Milbank's husband and I have met here to talk shop, and I have a shrewd presentiment that, unless we provide her with a diverting channel or two, Mrs. Milbank may find Venice a bore. I could never do that. Clodagh turned an animated face towards the dark flotilla on the outskirts of which their own gondola was hovering. But, my dear lady, even Venice can become uninteresting and dry, paradoxical as it may sound, Bernard returned airily. My proposal, he explained, is that I should make Francis Hope and Mrs. Milbank known to each other. Don't you think the idea brilliant? Quite, 
quite sarah called looked up interestingly you are a man of ideas barney lord deerhurst said nothing but again his eyeglasses gleamed in the uncertain light what is lady frances hope like clodagh asked suddenly withdrawing her gaze from the masked gondolas that swayed in the musician's lantern light like sarah called repeated vaguely how would you describe her uncle the sort of woman who does everything twice as well as anybody else and at half the cost eh lord deerhurst gave him one of his thin metallic laughs i always think he said slowly that if francis hope had been the child of a milkman instead of a marquis she would have made a singularly successful adventuress no reflections cast upon the late sammy my dear barnard he waved his white hand and the dim uncertain light gleamed on a magnificent diamond ring barnard laughed with a tolerant air rather an apt deduction he admitted i am inclined to agree with you francis is just one of those shrewd plain-looking attractive women who enjoy climbing steep ladders it is rather a pity she was born on the top rung but i believe we have frightened mrs milbank he turned suddenly and caught clodagh's expression as she sat forward listening intently at the mention of her name she laughed quickly and leant back against the cushions of her seat what do you mean she asked with a touch of constraint am i as childish as all that they all looked at her and barnard gave an amused laugh come he cried banteringly there's no use telling me you weren't just a little shocked shocked yes shocked he nodded his head once or twice in genial gaiety there's no denying that the word adventurous has a daunting sound there was a danger signal in the very thought of a lady who might under any conditions have been notorious come now confess clodagh looked from his amused quizzical eyes to sarah called satirical laughing ones and a shadow of uncertainty of doubt crossed her own bright face there was an element in this social atmosphere that she did not quite understand indeed she began hotly but sarah called whose glance had never left her own bent forward quickly looking up into her face i say mrs milbank he cried let's refute the insinuation of this old inquisitor let's waive ceremony and storm lady frances hope in her citadel she is always at home at this hour of the night clodagh looked up to-night she said oh but how could i i don't know her sarah called laughed oh as for that we're abroad not in england the greatest stickler for etiquette allows that there's a difference in the two conditions but i couldn't how could i her eyes sought bernard's oh yes he cried i knew it i knew it we have frightened you off she flushed uncomfortably it isn't that she cried in distress you know it isn't that involuntarily she turned to lord deerhurst but in the dim light she detected a smile on his pale cold face with a sudden change of emotion self-reliance came to her where does lady frances hope live she asked in a careless voice barnard was studying her intently she has apartments in the palazzo ugacini he said quite close at hand for a moment clodagh looked fixedly in front of her then her lips closed suddenly and she raised her head very well she said shortly take me to the palazzo ugacini just to prove that you were wrong End of part three chapter four recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com